Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of The Long Short. Today, we are delighted to bring you a Long Short exclusive. Two years ago this month, a multi-billion dollar German payment processing company, Wirecard, filed for insolvency after an astonishing 1.9 billion euro hole was discovered in its balance sheet by activist short sellers and journalists. This led to the arrest of its CEO, Marcus Brown, on counts of fraud, account rigging, market manipulation and breach of trust, while its larger-than-life CFO, Jean Marsac, is nowhere to be seen and two years on remains a fugitive. The Wirecard scandal sent shockwaves across global stock markets, as well as raising very difficult questions about the regulatory failures on the part of the German and European top financial watchdogs. And central to this saga is Dan McCrum, an FT investigative journalist, who following a tip-off from a hedge fund prompted a six-year investigation that culminated in the exposure of the world's biggest financial fraud since Enron. Through the course of this investigation, McCrum encountered a world stranger and more dangerous than he ever imagined. A world of whistleblowers, private militias, cyber hackers and spies. At times, it looked like his crusade and that of his short-seller compatriots would all be in vain, as in the space of a few short years, Wirecard had come from nowhere to overtake huge German industry giants like Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, taking over the latter to hold the much-coveted position in Germany's leading stock index. And now, like all good storytellers, Dan has published his first book. Yes, indeed. Money Men is the astonishing inside story of Wirecard's multi-billion dollar fraud. Dan McCrum's reporting on Wirecard has been recognized with the Impact Award for Distinguished Financial Journalism from the New York Writers Association, as well as the Ludwig Erhard Prize for Economic Journalism, a Reporters Forum Report Price, and a special award by the Helmut Schmidt Prize Jury for Investigative Journalism. And in 2020, Dan was named Journalist of the Year at the British Journalism Awards. And he sat down with the long short just before the launch of his new book. So, part one of today's podcast will feature the not-to-be-missed interview with Dan, while in part two, we will speak to Amos CEO Jack Ingalls to get his take on the wirecard fraud and the obsessive role that short sellers play in unearthing financial malfeasance with the likes of Enron and Wirecard and many other cases in their quest for the truth and protecting the interests of investors. So sit back and listen. We hope you enjoy the show. Dan McCrum, thank you so much for joining us on The Long Short today. Hello, thank you for having me on. So we are recording this episode only a few days before your first book, Money Men, is published, which details your central role in the rise and fall of the German payment processing giant Wirecard. So first question, how are you feeling today? 
it feels terrific. I mean, it's a real odyssey writing a book anyway. And it's this most incredible story, which I lived and breathed for eight years now. And it kind of turned my life upside down. And so to be able to share some of like the weird and amazing things which happened with the world, I'm, I'm quite excited to see how people react to it. And Dan, before we get into the book, um, for those listeners who do not know about you, can you give us a little bit of background on your career to date? I mean, you started your career as an analyst, right, at City, before moving into the world of journalism. I've been at DFT for several years now. So what made you shift gears then from working in the city to writing about it instead? So, yeah, the potted history is, I mean, like a lot of people, I did a grad scheme at an investment bank. And then I found myself working in the research department at Citigroup. And I did it for a few years, long enough to sort of get a sense of how things worked. And, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was kind of looking around going, there's nobody here whose job I actually want. And that was kind of a telling sign. And, uh, and I realized I'd always wanted to be a journalist. So I should probably quit before the markets crash. And there's lo lots more intelligent people who might try and do the same thing. So I just resigned and decided I'd have a go at being a reporter. Admirable. <laughs> um, so as, I think it would be fair to say that most people have at least heard of Wirecard and, and may have uh, somewhat of an idea of what exactly went on with that whole saga. But just on the off chance there is anyone who has never heard that that's fabled name before could you just give us like a real highlight overview of the the journey that that you and wirecard went on yeah so wirecard wasn't even really a household name in germany so it was this little payments company it started life as this little payments company and it told everyone it was the european paypal and it did a pretty simple business if you had like an online store it would help you take payments from customers and um, get the money from the credit card company to you. And it was pretty simple. And it became a bit of a stock market sensation. And um, over time, it slowly got more and more valuable. And what happened was way back in 2014, I started looking into it. And um, it looked a little bit fraudy. There were a bunch of red flags. Some of its numbers didn't make sense. And to give you the very broad overview before we jump into the details, nothing really happened. You know, wrote a bunch of stories. The company got attacked by short sellers. And every time the German authorities came to Wirecard's defense and sort of investigated the company's critics or dismissed what they were saying. And it got so big that it entered the DAX 30, you know, the equivalent of the FTSE 100. And it was the next big thing. It was this huge company which was going to transform, you know, the whole economy bring cashless payments to the world. And it turned out that it was a gigantic fraud. And with the help of some whistleblowers and with a few adventures along the way, the Financial Times was finally able to expose this and it came crashing down in the summer of 2020. And there's been a parliamentary inquiry since. There are some uh, trials due to start of some former executives in September. And the story that I've written is really the, you know, we hear a lot about dirty money. And this is the experience of when dirty money comes after you. 
And so there were hackers, there were private detectives, there were high-powered lawyers, all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff happened. And again, fascinating read. For, for those of you who don't have a book, you know, please do pick it up uh, at, at your local bookshop or, or on your online bookstore. Uh, again, great, great read and great accounting. Many congratulations um, for for your your book, Dan. Um, let's go back to what you said. You were first tipped off about Wirecard being potentially rotten back in 2014 from a fund manager that had just uncovered a fraudulent mining company using much the same skills as an investigative journalist. Do you feel then that the investigative work that you do has much in common with that of fund managers researching investment opportunities, including, as you describe, short sellers, you know, taking short positions on a stock, that being where the fund manager takes a view that a share price will fall in value given their belief that the stock is overvalued. Except your research ends up with a front page splash instead of the fund manager being depicted as a bearish trade. Yeah, so the fund manager manager you mentioned there is John Hempton, uh, the Australian guy behind Bronte Capital. We were chatting about frauds and he knew the sort of stories I was interested in. And he said to me, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? I'm like, sure, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I jotted the name down Wirecard and started to have a little look into it. The reason why I was talking to John is because I'd sort of worked out that short sellers were kind of interesting. These um, hedge fund managers who are trying to look for companies who are overvalued. And I think a lot of the skills are similar. And really, I mean, you know, your job as a journalist isn't to become expert in everything. It's to find the experts and get them to tell you the important information that you need. And so I had decided that short sellers were interesting because they were looking for corporate wrongdoing. And I basically wanted to find the next Enron. People like John, and there's, a, there's quite a few um, hedge fund managers who pop up in the tail. They do do quite journalistic work. They're looking for, you know, evidence of lies, things which don't fit. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of financial analysis in there as well. But really, you know, the beauty of a fraudulent company from the perspective of an investor is that it can very quickly go from 100 to zero. And so if you can spot that in a barn and if you can get confidence that this is a fraud, then you can make a lot of money. But there are differences between those sorts of investors and journalists. And um, one of the big ones is that I can ring up a company or I can ring up other people and get them to talk to me in a way that a hedge fund manager or an investor can't. Um, because you can sort of brush off a, you know, a random hedge fund manager. But if the Financial Times comes and knocks on your door and threatens to write a story about you, you kind of have to say something. And what we do is we sort of, we don't have any dog in the fight. So, um, and I think you see that sometimes, I mean, um, short sellers get a lot of criticism, a lot of it unjust, and that becomes a big part of the Wirecard story. But, you know, sometimes the public short sellers do throw a whole lot of mud at a company just to see what sticks. Whereas if you're being a journalist at the Financial Times, you know, we have to check everything that's been told to us we sort of understand what the, you know, the incentives of the guys we're speaking to. And, you know, we only print what we can prove or, you know, reconstruct for ourselves. But yeah, they make great sources. And, you know, everybody in finance has a financial interest. The management want their stock options to pay out. I think 
you just get used to dealing with the, the kind of uh, financial interests that, um, that hedge funds and other investors have. And I find them interesting characters. And I'm, I'm going to take pity on our listeners here because we've, we've mentioned fraud, we've mentioned German gangsters and hinted at, at you know, a few adventures on the way. And so I'm just going to have to ask you about this directly because uh, one of the, the short sellers that you mentioned who put out some, some written research are the authors of the Zatara report. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I've only read it up until now. Yeah, and, Zatara, that's right. <laughs> and uh, that's really one of the first examples of uh, corporate malfeasance at Wirecard. And, and, and once that came to light, alongside your own coverage, everybody involved, including yourself and these fund managers, came in for some, under some real pressure in, in what can really only be described as sort of Cold War-style espionage with cyber attacks and, and even you know people sort of turning up on your driveway in unmarked cars. And there's a lot more details there as well. And, and so it really does read like something out of you know an Ian Fleming novel rather than something that actually happened to you as a as a you know an FT reporter in London of all places and you know only a short time ago as well so so I think the question I really wanted to ask is you know was there at any point where you really genuinely felt worried I mean you give some examples about the uh, the protocols you put in place to, to try and stay safe but your most concerned how concerned were you if that makes sense so it was pretty scary at times <clears throat> so one of the one of the characters in the book um is matt earl um he's a short fella who runs shadowfall research these days but he was also behind this zatara attack which in 2016 published a then anonymous dossier saying there was a whole bunch of money laundering being done by wirecard and the authorities should investigate and Matt and I have often talked about what we experienced after that. And it was a really weird thing because if you try to talk to friends or other people about it and basically say, yeah, so there's this German bank which is out to get me, you just sound mad, right? And the infuriating thing was, is that for a very long time, there was no way we could prove Wirecard was behind it. So it started with the hackers. So me and my colleagues and lots of other people who had criticized Wirecard started to get all these phishing emails. Turns out it was from an Indian hacker gang. And then this anonymous whistleblower pops up on the internet with pictures of some of my emails, which were real. And so we knew somebody had been hacked. And then these private detectives start showing up and you become really incredibly paranoid. And I started finding myself doing strange things like I'm, I'm just looking out my window here. I live at the end of a cul-de-sac and at the end of it is this big hedge. And I knew that um, one way you can spot cameras is if you shine a light on them. So when I would drive in at night, I would just try and sort of like sweep the headlights across the hedge, keeping it out for a little reflection, partly because I didn't want my neighbours to see me going and just like nosing around in the hedge looking for a camera which wasn't there. But that kind of... Um, that sort of pressure and knowing that you have sort of these guys who are out to get you, that becomes really oppressive. And particularly when things heated up in 2019, when we were in this real battle with the company, we started to realize that Russian spies were somehow involved. And you start to become, yeah, a little bit worried about your safety. You know, if I stand close to the platform, is someone going to just push me in front of a train? Or, you know, as you're cycling home on the bike, I would always have this like nagging worry in the back of my mind particularly when you're cycling home in the dark that 
well, if I got hit by a bus here, it would really solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. And uh, something else that, that really struck me, and again, I have a lot of sympathy with you here in my, my former life as a journalist myself, is you make repeated reference to how thrifty the FT really had to be. And I think you mentioned it even in the first few pages and then uh, especially at the end as well, when you're talking about all the legal guidance and everything you had to do to make sure that you were telling these really important stories you know, accurately and, and responsibly. And you, know, you, you mentioned before that you can only publish what you can stand up and you know it, it's always your name there uh, at the top of those stories. And uh, from, so from the outside, the Financial Times may come across as, you know, a real big beast to the financial world. And I think you, you lean upon those global resources uh, several points throughout the story. And But when you went up against Wirecard, you came across much more as, you know, the David rather than the Goliath in this story, which, which maybe was an unusual experience for you. And I, I really liked uh, your wife's quote when she, you know, you, you, you seem to be full of optimism. And then she says, you know, it's always the people with the most money that win, which must have been, you know, an, an unfortunate truism. And, and I obviously, as I say, I have, I have huge sympathies for everything you were under. But when I was reading it, I, I couldn't help but also be struck by this community of, of, of boutique fund managers that, that you were working with and that seemed to be working at least as hard as you to, to sort of uncover the truth. And those that had short positions were bleeding every day. And, you know, for anyone who, who doesn't understand, there's sort of a, a daily fee that you pay to borrow the shares to short them. And that increases as the share price goes up or, you know, the wrong way in this case, in addition to all the legal fees you've got. So, so in some ways, I did sort of get the impression that they were sort of the real Davids of this story. And I just wondered if, if you agreed with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was difficult for everybody because, so, so to take the hedge fund guys first, I mean, there were a small group of hedge fund managers who were basically completely convinced that Wirecard was a fraud, much like we were. And I just saw it again and again. Wirecard became an obsession because you would look and you go, oh my God, there's all this evidence that they're up to no good. Look, it's here and here and here and look at the paperwork. And so these investors would be like, like I've got so much evidence. And then they would be driven slowly mad because none of it would work. The, um, you know, Wirecard would wriggle off the hook somehow. And um, so Eduardo Marx, um, who was at Valiant and now runs uh, Pertento, um, was one of the key guys who did a lot of work and um, would sort of be sharing his research with me. And I remember him saying, what was it? You know, we basically have to catch Marcus Brown, the chief executive, at a pedo party with Harvey Weinstein for anyone to care. It was so baffling that all this evidence had been presented that Wirecard was a fraud and nothing seemed to happen. But he also made a very good point, which was, so in 2019, um, I had discovered a whistleblower or a whistleblower had got in touch and had given me a whole load of evidence of this sort of organized book cooking operation in Singapore where Wirecard had its Asian headquarters. And so I had written a series of stories saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of evidence of fraud here. This is really weird. But the numbers were quite small. It was only about $30 million worth of fake contracts. And Wirecard at the time had $2 B 
billion euros of annual sales. And what Eduardo always said was, people made the mistake of looking at the numbers, which were small, and using that to dismiss it. Whereas what they should have been looking at was the practices. Why on earth hadn't Wirecard fired everybody involved at the first time this came to light? Why was there this internal cover-up? Why was it um, you know, allowing this to happen? And it turned out the answer was because it was a giant criminal organization. But for a long time, it's answer that, ah, oh, these numbers aren't very big, seemed to carry weight. And in terms of that, the, the numbers as well. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, you know, those moments where I put in like how the FT was very cost conscious. You know, what I was trying to do with this story as well was I wanted to give people a sense of the journalism and what was involved. So the mistakes are in there as well. Um, and... And there'd be moments like I remember when, when I flew out to Singapore to meet this whistleblower for the first time and to save £170, the FT said, oh, I can change in Brunei, which was like a thousand mile detour. So we're doing that sort of thing. And then Wirecard was doing stuff like dropping £18,000 a day on this sort of sprawling private detective operation who were running around London uh, following people. So yeah, I was trying to convey the sort of the mismatch of resources as well. Oh, and in terms of, and I just remember it as well, sorry, I tried to answer your question and got completely distracted talking about the fun adventure. And um, they, in terms of that David and Goliath aspect, I mean, a lot of these hedge funds have sort of much more resources to go and investigate things. But yes, there was a period where sort of in 2017, the Wirecard share price kept just going up and up and up and up. And it sort of blew most of the hedge funds out of the water and they had to abandon it. And I think I say in the book, one guy, he became so annoyed that he had to close his short position and his fund had to just stop trading Wirecard. But he told me he was so infuriated that if by the time he retired, Wirecard was still going, he was just going to dedicate his retirement to exposing them. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complete obsession, as you say, and it takes real bravery and belief to commit to these short positions uh you know and the hedge funds who did stick by it have been vindicated and and there will be some of course who say it is wrong for uh, fund managers to benefit from corporate misery but i would say there would have been a lot less misery for those investors you know, who continue to buy their shares up to the peak that you you say dan had they paid heed to the public signals being put out by short sellers and by the action of yourself um, but um, your book describes also how the FT and other fund managers were able to gather clear evidence of fraud, and you alluded to it as well in terms of going out and meeting the whistleblower, by simply bothering to visit some of the locations of Wirecard's alleged clients. So how much did the cross-border nature then of Wirecard's activities protect it from the regulatory scrutiny and should regulators be doing more to collaborate when evidence of corporate malfeasance is presented? There's this great moment where um, there's this American researcher, Susanna Krober. As you say, she goes and visits all of Wirecard's offices in, in Asia and she, and she finds herself sort of going down dirt tracks looking for buildings which aren't there or sort of walking through empty shopping malls. Every single thing that she does gives her more evidence that, yeah, none of this makes sense. There's nothing really here. And you sort of keep seeing this again and again. But she said to me, while she was on that dirt track, 
going slightly mad because it's like, is this the address? Have I maybe slightly got it wrong? Is it a, you know, going to visit three different places to make sure she hasn't made a mistake? And she's like, I'm going slightly crazy doing this. Who in their right mind is going to do this sort of work just to look into a stock investment? And then when she did publish this research and she spoke to fund managers and she said, she told me they, she would just have these strange conversations where she realized people were just talking past each other. But they're a big company, you know, they're responsible senior executives. Why would they be lying to us? And she's like, well, because there's money at stake. But again, it's that mental leap which is required to, um, to look at something and go, I think this is fraud rather than, oh, I think this is the next big thing. And there was another part to your question. And in that reminiscence, I've completely forgotten it. What was the... Uh... The question was then, how much did the cross-border nature then of Wirecard's activities protect it from the regulatory scrutiny? You know, and should regulators be doing more to collaborate when evidence of corporate malfeasance like this is presented? So I think since Wirecard collapsed, the German regulator Baffin has become much more open to listening to investors and short sellers. Because prior to Wirecard's collapse, it was sent a whole bunch of dossiers and whistleblower reports, which it seemed to ignore. You know, I think regulators should do a better job in paying attention to these sorts of issues, particularly when they're raised in a public forum. And I think you can see a difference um, in attitude. So there does seem to be a little bit of a distaste with an Anglo-Saxon approach. So in the US and the UK, um, the regulators do at least say that they pay attention to short sellers. And the FCA does seem to be reasonably open to the idea that they might have something useful to say. Whereas you see again in Germany, but also in France, that short sellers are treated as inherently suspect and are just trying to do down good companies. And, and we touched on this earlier. I mean, it, it's a long debate about, you know, what is legitimate criticism? you know, and the role of short sellers in markets. And I think it's a very healthy thing, right? It's like having the joker in the court of the king to sort of poke fun at everyone and puncture people who are getting too big for their boots or, uh, you know, getting too carried away. You need someone in markets to go, well, hang on a second. Is all of this cracked up to what everyone thinks it is? You know, because markets and people get carried away quite a lot. I mean, we've just seen that with the collapse in Bitcoin and all the various crypto uh, markets okay dan and tom i'm gonna to have to apologize here because you only allude to this point briefly in the book but I, I couldn't help but dwell on it because it was my small area of obsession in this story which was the the short selling ban uh that came from the local regulator and was then subsequently endorsed by the european regulator and i just i couldn't help but feel at the time that this really exposed some fundamental flaws in the way this process was applied. And, and you've sort of alluded to maybe a philosophical reason behind why this was pushed through. And, uh, you know, and you've, you've also mentioned how Wirecard became this, you know, darling of the, of the German financial market, you know, especially when it, when it joined the DAX 30, but maybe I'm, showing my naivety here, but I just, I just couldn't help but feel watching this in real time that it was, it was rushed. If I remember correctly, you know, Esma has 24 hours to agree to these things and it's pushed through and there just really seems to be a real lack of scrutiny. And obviously in hindsight, 
it really has raised some questions for me. So, so say, do you, do you really think there's there's lessons to be learned here and uh, how these are applied, these bans? So I think there's a lesson throughout the book, which is that people keep assuming somebody else has done the work. And all you have to do is get like the first person to say, yeah, everything's fine. And everyone else assumes that they have done the work. And so Wirecard would do it with, you know, its auditors would sign off, the bankers would rely on that, the investors would rely on the bankers and so on. You saw the same thing with this short selling bet. So in early 2019, Baffin comes out and says, we're going to ban short selling and Wirecard shares to protect the German economy and market. And it's this very powerful weapon, which they had only previously used during the financial crisis against 11 banks. So it's the first time they were stepping in to protect one company. The way it happened was a couple of guys in a nightclub were having a conversation about, there was a rumor going around that a Financial Times story was about to break, which was gonna be bad for Wirecard. And it's pretty clear to me that rumor was leaked by Wirecard to discredit us. And so what Jan Marslek, who is who was chief operating officer for Wirecard, um, this sort of charismatic wannabe spy from Austria who was behind all the dirty tricks. He gets one of the guys in the room to say, yeah, I knew an FT story was coming. So they put together a witness statement. They call him an investor and Wirecard hand delivers this to prosecutors in Munich. Here we go. Solid gold evidence that the Financial Times is corrupt and there's an orchestrated campaign to attack this German company. And so the prosecutors give it to Baffin and Baffin gives it to Esma. And everyone is taking it very seriously, you know. Well, if the prosecutors are taking it seriously, we should take it seriously. If Baffin's taking it seriously, we should take it seriously. But there were a couple of problems with this. Uh, for one, the guy from the nightclub hadn't signed the witness statement. And if prosecutors had looked into it, an investor was a bit of a stretch to describe him. He was married to um, a star of The Only Way is Essex, and he had a conviction. Uh, the police had tried to convict him for basically running a cocaine gang in London that drove around delivering parcels of cocaine on mopeds. Uh, but they couldn't get him on that. They just got him, he was only convicted on the charge of hiding 116,000 pounds of drug gang cash underneath his daughter's bed. When the which the police found when they raided his house. And this was the witness who caused this unprecedented intervention in markets by the German authorities. And as soon as you step back and examine it, it's like, wow, that seems a little funky, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, it was amazing that they just took it and run with it. And obviously this idea that Wirecard would damage European markets were it to collapse was wrong because it did collapse and nothing happened. Uh, and, and Dan, um... Just going back to the uh, the reputation around short selling for a moment, you know, a quick Google search on short selling, and then you look at the references also to short selling around Wirecard, depict the short selling actors as instigating a short attack. But I feel that kind of language, the kind of aggressive type of language, it's not really a fair description. When what short sellers are actually doing is warning investors and the public as to what their research has found. So do, would you agree that this 
description of a short attack really plays into the hands of firms like Wirecard, who will inevitably then characterise short sellers as the bad guys peddling false information for their financial gain. It's a tricky subject, isn't it? Because sometimes the term short attack is justified because you have activist short sellers like, say, Muddy Waters, uh, run by Carson Block. It's probably the most famous in the States. Um, and they will stand up one day, you, typically with some dossier of information, say, there are serious problems with this company. Everyone should pay attention. Get out now. The share price is going to zero. And that is an attack. They suddenly appeared from nowhere and without warning told everyone there's a problem at the company. So I think, yeah, I can see how that language is used. And it obviously it becomes more complicated than that because it depends on, well, who is the short seller? How good is their work? And then you get into interesting questions about, well, how long do they stand by that work? Is it fair to say, stand up and go, this company is a fraud, watch the share price drop, and then take profits straight away? Should you have to wait a certain period between, you, between then and taking your profits? You know, or should you have to hold on, tell everyone immediately when you change your position? So even if everything you have done is correct and you could be bang on right, I think you can call those sort of tactics an attack. And so the question is not somebody has been attacked. Um, oh, my God, that's inherently wrong. It's, well, was the attack justified? Was what they said correct? And not all criticism is an attack of that nature. Um, so, so I think there are different tactics. And so it, it's very hard to sort of do make a sort of a blanket response to it. But I think... I think what you can say is any company which is complaining about a short seller attack and is doing what we would call an ad hominem argument, if they're going after the player saying these are scurrilous short sellers, instead of calmly answering the questions which have raised and saying, well, if you have questions, we'll sit down with you and give reasonable answers, that's much more telling. So it's who uses those terms attack. And if... Um, if the company is doing it, then I'd be very suspicious. I think it it is tricky because of of course you're right. To, it's difficult to uh, generalise massively about sort of a whole, even even though uh, short sellers make up a very small uh, segment of the the hedge fund industry, and, and activist short sellers make an even smaller subset subset of that subset. But I think there is. A, something again just to come back to to your own work on this and and, and maybe just draw back to the to the top of the conversation where we're talking about parallels that there really was a question of the level of conviction that was required throughout this journey because you 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 point out you know the evidence seemed to mount and mount and mount and, and nothing seemed to to happen for the longest time you know nothing happened and then it sort of all happened at once and there did seem to be, you know, we, we, we've mentioned the costs, we've mentioned the, you know, the, the personal um, costs and, you know, maybe even your own safety you had to put on the line. But when it comes to your own work at the uh, FT and, and, you know, again, I, I, I can't help but draw the parallel with the hedge funds that, that, that helped you along the way. Was there ever a point where you thought, do you know what, 
I'm, I'm, I just, this isn't going to work. I'm done. You know, was there, was there, you know, you obviously, you, you have your editors and was there ever a wobble or cause you, you seem so, uh, steadfast throughout, but, uh, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that just didn't come across. So I was always convinced why I was a criminal company. Every single interaction with them just made us think that is weird. This is not how normal companies behave. So, so one, one of the best examples is after the Satara attack, my boss, who I worked with the whole time on the story, uh, sort of old school, uh, city editor, reporter, Paul Murphy, um, who has a bunch of these, uh, sources we call bandits, basically prolific stock market traders. And so the Zatara report has been published. The wildcard share price has crashed. All this weird stuff starts happening. And in the middle of it, the guy who owns the fabric nightclub, you know, the big one in Smithfield, he gets in touch with Paul. And he said, and he's one of Paul's longstanding secret sources. They used to chat all the time about stock market gossip and stuff. And he goes, I've got this German guy who'd like to talk to you. His name's Jan Marsalek. He's, uh, he's something to do with a company called Wirecard. And we're like, what on earth is happening here? How has the chief operating officer of a German financial institution worked out who are secret sources? And he wants him to arrange a conversation? Like normal companies have PR firms to do that. Um, and we said, no, um, they're threatening to sue us for one. I mean, they were, they were throwing lots of expensive London lawyers at us. But it's that sort of thing. That is really weird when it happens. And the frustrating thing was, I mean, one of the amazing things about the book is to finally be able to tell all these stories of what was going on, because you, you can't put that into print. You can't turn that into a, an FT story. And um, so I was always convinced, but there was a moment in sort of early 2017 when I had written a whole bunch of articles saying, well, Wirecard seems like a bit of a fraud without actually using the F word because we didn't want to get sued. And then the Zatara report come along and said, it's a whole money laundering operation. So all of these allegations have been aired against Wirecard. And in early 2017, the accountant for the accounting firm EY signs off on Wirecard's accounts, says everything's fine. And then the German regulator Baffing comes out and says, we're investigating the short sellers. So presumably there's nothing to see here. And at that point, I kind of gave up. I felt like, well, my career as as I explained in the book, my career wasn't going brilliantly at that moment. And, um, and I tried my best and I just assumed, well, there are other stories here. I'll just have to leave it alone. Dan, the story still goes on. Uh, are there any mysteries for you left outstanding that you'd like to solve from this? I mean, I'm keen to know, as is Drew, did you ever get to meet Jan Marcelek or did you ever get to meet with Marcus Brown? I know there were invitations. I'm not sure if you ever followed up on them or they ever allowed you to meet with them. So Marcus Brown, I never met. I might go to the trial um, in Germany in the autumn, maybe just to take a look at him and wave hello. But um, yeah, we beyond one interview in December 2014, that was the only conversation I ever had with him. Jan Marsalek, I've never spoken to. So behind me on my wall is this red ringed Interpol most wanted poster with a picture of Jan Marslek on it. And so he's been peering over my shoulder whilst I've written the book. Um, and 
in a lot in a large respect you know a lot of the book certainly the wirecard perspective is this charismatic clever interesting guy courting disaster and almost destroying the company and then somehow getting away with it and finding it some way to bumble through to the next thing and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and he becomes this sort of international international jet set guy who's flying around in private planes and dealing with spies and playing sort of games of international intrigue and so i'm still and then at the end when wirecard comes crashing down he disappears that's one of the most amazing things in the whole story is um wirecard collapses and on a thursday and this guy jan marsalek isn't arrested he just sort of, you know, gently strolls out the building. And um, the next day he gets on a private jet to Minsk in Belarus and he disappears. And he's thought to be in Moscow somewhere now. And so one of the big mysteries is, well, what was Jan Marsalek really up to? You know, what were his ties to these foreign governments? You know, was he, was he a spy? Was he just a friend of spies? You know, who was he really working with and for? And, you know, it was very convenient for a lot of people that he didn't end up in jail. And so I think a lot of the remaining mystery centers on that. I have to say the, the big mystery for me going through that book was how you got some of those details on sort of the other side of, of what they're up to in, in that sort of chapter by chapter uh, contrast that you did. It's, it, <laughs> the The amazing detail that not only does he stroll out the office but he goes for a nice slap up dinner that day sits out like i can only imagine what that conversation must have been like going to dinner that night before he before he uh, vanishes and, and it's, it's, you know you you mentioned today you sort of give this really neat roundup at the end of of where everyone's done but but you do keep to the the uh, cardinal rule of don't become the story and you've, you you did leave yourself out of that and and so i'd say just just to put the spotlight back on you for a moment can you give us just a little insight into what you're working on now and, and does it seem incredibly humdrum or are you just grateful for maybe a more standard story i don't know i mean i'm still incredibly grateful that i just stumbled into this like crazy insane story and um and so I'm not quite done telling it yet. I mean, this is the moment where I get to finally share the whole thing with the world. But um, but no, but, I mean, if anyone is listening and has a good story, I'm, I'm still part of the Financial Times investigation team. And I'm very much looking for the next big story, be it a, an accounting fraud or other forms of uh, bad behaviour. Um, so, yeah, I have a few irons and fires. I'm hoping to have some more stories. Um, at some point and um and yeah and then just to see where the uh wirecard thing goes as well there will be um there'll be a documentary coming out in the autumn um on a streaming service you may have heard of i mean your book as we say it has all the hallmarks of a classic thriller um so i i'd love to know if you sold a movie rights dan um so who would you want to have play you <laughs> Having having learnt a small amount about how the movie business works, I would just be stunned and delighted if ever, if anyone wants to uh, make this into a, a movie, or um, you know, or a sixty episode uh, television serial. I mean, there's lots of material 
uh, they're still on the cutting floor. But uh, I mean, but we're still in we're still in talks about getting uh, the rights for U.S. publication of the book. So um, watch this space on that one as well. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're right on the cusp of your book coming out. And uh, I say, oh, the other thing as well, is there, is there going to be an audio version as well? I know people are big on that these days. And, and are, you, are you voicing it yourself? Uh, so I think actually when the podcast comes out, the book will be available in all good booksellers, uh, Money Men by Dan McCrum. And the audio book is read by me. I just finished it last week and it was quite an unusual experience, but it was quite fun sitting in a booth for three days uh, reading through the book. Um, so yes, de- very much an audiobook. Excellent. I wanted to ask that as well. I'm, I'm big into the audiobooks, although in this case, I did appreciate having the real thing in front of me. Uh, but as I say, I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. I say a particular, uh, a particular uh, obsession with mine as well as this was playing out. So it was so great to, to hear from yourself on the, on the front lines throughout this process. Uh, so I say thank you so much and all the best. I assume you will have a whirlwind launch tour and parties and, you know, maybe you'll finally get to celebrate with that drink that you didn't get over lockdown. Absolutely. Yeah, Mars like might turn up at your party, Dan. <laughs> well, that would make for a very interesting party indeed. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been terrific. Thanks again. EMA are delighted to host our annual conference dedicated to ESG this September the 8th in London. The full-day programme will address the basics of ESG integration, the latest development in investor demands, new trends and themes, and the regulatory updates the firms need to know about. This is a prime opportunity to network at the industry and to hear unparalleled insights from speakers about how to approach responsible investment techniques across a range of strategies. To register or to find out more, visit the AMO website. We hope to see you there. Hello, Jack. You're very welcome back to the Long Short. Hello there, Tom. <laughs> so we've just heard from Dan about his odyssey in getting to the bottom of Wirecard's cooked books. So, so what did you make of his story? And, and in particular, the insight he gave into how investigative journalists and short sellers work in quite a similar fashion to uh, uncover financial malfeasance. Yeah, you can't make it up, can you? Um, I, I think it's it's... It's proof that um, truth is often stranger than fiction. I love listening to Dan on that and I'm looking forward very much to um, reading the book. It's a, it's, a, it's a gripping story, isn't it? And it's one that um, clearly, um, thanks to Dan's wonderful investigative work, um, uh, is going to look very good on the page. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think the uh, one of the, the, the key similarities between the sort of investigative work that Dan and fellow journalists do uh, and that of um, short sellers, the work that they do, is, is that sort of really deep and dogged research uh, and uh, investigative work uh, that they undertake to get really at the heart of the story here. Um, and I think what's very clear with uh, with um, Dan and uh, and certainly what I uh, see with with short sellers, dedicated short sellers on uh, on situations like this, is it really gets under your skin. Clearly got under Dan's skin, and I've heard that from so many hedge fund managers who've, uh, um, uh, whether it be here with Wirecard or with other similar stories, um, where 
uh, you know, they knew through the hard work that something was going wrong, uh, and they dedicated themselves uh, to finding out more, to uncovering the truth. Uh, and I think one one of the things that uh, Jim Chanos once said, and I think uh, he was his name was very much associated with the uh, Enron fraud of uncovering the Enron fraud, um, is that, um, that that hedge funds here, short sellers, are real time financial detectives, and I think that's exactly what uh, what Dan is as well. So there's that very much uh, similarity of getting really at the heart of the matter through hard hard work. And Jack, Wirecard is not the only example of such fraudulent activity outed by short sellers. You mentioned Enron as, as another example. Yet, despite their efforts, the practice of short selling and its reputation isn't very highly regarded at all. I mean, going after short sellers is a recurring theme. In the case of Wirecard, we have policymakers and business leaders describing short selling as being anti-patriotic and anti-business and, and their actions being tantamount to betting on a company's failure and it's somehow unjust to short sell. Why do you think this is? Well, I think that's been around for not just years, but centuries. You go back to 1610 and uh, the Dutch authorities um, banned short selling because uh, of the falling share price of the Dutch East India Company. Um, 200 years later, Uh, Napoleon banned short selling in France, describing it it as an act of treason uh, for which you could be imprisoned um, and potentially have your head lopped off. Uh, So there has been a view as it being unpatriotic um, uh, throughout the centuries. And we continue to see that. Um, I think most recently um, we well we saw it in somewhat in 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 Wirecard at the time when the short sale ban was imposed in 2019. The reasons that were cited uh, by the German authorities by Bafin um, about the the the, 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 the damaging uh, effects it had on confidence in the German market. Um, then. During the start of the pandemic in 2020, we saw short sale bans from uh, France, um, from Italy, from Spain, some other countries, uh, also some countries out in in Asia Pacific. Uh, And um, so it's kind of not new uh, at all. I think one of the things to be aware of here is is A, there are some cultural differences. And by the way, Germany did not impose a um, a short selling ban uh, in uh, at the start of the pandemic when markets um, were uh, were roiled by uh, the economic impact of that. Um, but uh, I, I think there is a cultural difference in, in, in countries which has been fairly lasting uh, where there is a belief that uh, that, that, that short selling is um, somewhat anti-market. Um, fortunately, that view is changing uh, and we're seeing that. And, and if you compare the cumulative number of days that short selling bans were in place during the pandemic, they were about a tenth, uh, in fact, even less than a tenth, um, of the cumulative number of days of short-selling bans that were imposed back in 2008 during the time of the global financial crisis. So there is definitely a, um, a, a, a shift uh, in, in attitudes, certainly among the major markets and major economies, uh, that it's not really solving what people think it might be solving. I think the other thing I would say is that the corporate lobby can be very powerful uh, at times, and by that I mean 
businesses uh, who have their, their companies um, listed on stock exchanges do get listened to by governments. Um, and they uh, will speak up very, very loudly uh, when they think that um, their share price is being attacked. Um, it may be justly or unjustly. Often they're going to think it's unjustly for uh, obvious reasons. Uh, but governments tend to listen more to businesses than necessarily um, hedge funds who are uh, in the act of short selling. I think you've touched on something really important and interesting there because when I was covering the story as uh, as a journalist, I, I mostly focused on the role that various regulators in Europe played in in inadvertently shielding Wirecard from the scrutiny of short sellers through the imposition of these bans. And, and I pointed out at the time some of the shortcomings in the review process that underpins the mechanism of these short selling bans. And, and as you say, that there are other factors in play as to, as to why that may have gone through on that particular occasion. And, and as Dan noted when he was summarising the sort of the aftermath, he, he said that there, there had been somewhat of a period of reflection by these regulatory bodies. And that gives me some hope that the Wirecard saga ultimately may be different to, to other fraud cases that short sellers have uncovered when it comes to shaping the views of regulators and policymakers. And, and interesting there that we do have that juxtaposition of, of Germany did impose a ban on, on Wirecard for systemic risk issues uh, in, in well, pre-COVID, but then did not impose a more widespread ban during COVID. And uh, maybe that indicates some lessons learned there and maybe a shifting of the of the needle when it comes to perception but I, I just wondered if you agreed that something does appear to be fundamentally changing when we look at back from 2009 to you know to, to 2020 and, and looking ahead I think that has been um, and continues to be a, a fundamental shift in the understanding of what short selling is all about um, by policymakers and uh, and regulators. But I don't think it's been a, a Damascene moment just by um, what's gone in Wirecard. I think this is something that has evolved over time and will continue to evolve. And there's, there's a really sort of considerable body of academic work uh, and empirical evidence that shows that short selling bans don't work. And indeed, we've heard from regulators uh, in the U.S., for example, uh, the SEC has publicly regretted the short sale bans it put put in place in in 2008 at the time of the global financial crisis. More recently, uh, Barfin and uh, certainly their president owned up and, and apologized uh, for imposing the short ban on Wirecard and actually went out of his way to pay tribute to both the journalists and the short sellers who um, dug into the inconsistencies uh, so persistently uh, to uncover this fraud. Uh, so I think there has, this has really helped uh, uh, a greater understanding uh, that short selling uh, and investigative work that that is that surrounds it, not just by journalists but by hedge fund sellers coming together around this, uh, that it is actually incredibly um, valuable. 
so I think that change is now being uh, is now in place, well understood. And as that data I suggested earlier on uh, about the number of uh, cumulative days uh, that were we we saw short selling bans imposed at the time during the pandemic or this early part of the pandemic, as opposed to the global financial crisis, shows that we've come a long way uh, in the past fifteen years or so. And at the time of Wirecard's collapse, you went on record to say that there is a, a very powerful message in the value of short selling and that it takes both bravery and belief to commit to a short position. I think there are many, many examples in Dan's book to really drive that message home. But I just wondered if you could just elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners. Well, well, Dan's book, I think, which is um, he, he's describing in a very relatable way um, what happened, uh, and uh, the story is is, is going to be riveting for anybody uh, who who reads it, uh, and indeed for those people who are coming to the whole saga uh, for the first time. So I think he's done a huge service uh, in exposing not just what was going on in Wirecard, but the value of the investigative work, not just carried out by him, but also alongside him, short sellers. So I think that in itself is um, is incredibly valuable. Yes, you're right. I did, did back when, um, uh, in, in June 2020, I wrote a blog, uh, which I described as a vindication. Uh, the headline was a vindication um, around short selling and, and Wirecard. And it is brave. It is brave to back your research with a a large short position against an individual company like that, where the rest of the market is telling you it's a darling of the stock market and it's um, uh, in in the DAX 30, etc. So really going against popular opinion. And the reason it's so brave is because if you are wrong, the losses can be unlimited. Uh, in in short selling, you sh- you sell and the share price keeps going up, and it's going to cost you, and it's going to cost you very heavily. And unfortunately, those uh, there were a number of hedge funds who got it right, but just couldn't carry on with the pain of carrying that short position as the share price continued to rise. Uh, more recently, we've seen in GameStop short sellers who really could not understand why GameStop uh, share price was at the level that it was, uh, given the rather old-fashioned nature um, of the product that they had. But nevertheless, they came, uh, they came against um, a concerted effort to squeeze out those shorts. Uh, and although their investment thesis was potentially right, definitely uh, it caused a lot of pain uh, as the share price was uh, was was pushed to unimaginably high levels, so it takes courage. Uh, and the way you you sort of get over that, um, it's not a, just a a leap of faith. Um, it's a leap uh, built on an enormous amount of work to uncover. Um, the rationale and the reasons why you want to short in the first place, whether that be fraud or whether it just be a simple overvaluation in a company. Um, So I think that's right. Um, It's very, uh, it's not for the faint hearted short selling. Uh, And there are some people, um, particularly in these instances, who um, uh, really go that extra mile. But what I did want to say, short selling is not all about to uncover sort of accounting 
uh, malpractice uh, or fraud of such nature. In fact, it's a very, very small part. Yes, there's been some examples. Um, Enron, we've talked about. Uh, Wirecard. Uh, there are others, but fortunately, they're not everyday occurrences. Uh, the main, by far and away, the majority of short selling activity in the stock markets uh, is to mitigate risk in the market. So it's a hedging technique. It is not necessarily, and actually, it's very seldom employed uh, in situations um, where there is such large fraud um, that is being uh, being exposed. Uh, so it's, it's very much part of the everyday market activity, uh, hedging, a trading strategy, rather than, and this is where sometimes the public imagination runs away with itself, uh, rather than being something to uh, try and forcibly drive share prices down. It's definitely a very, very small part of the overall short selling activity that goes on in markets. And I think it's really important to realize that. Yeah, and Jack, you picked up on a very salient point there. It, it is about educating, and it's specifically educating the wider public policymakers and the media about the value of short selling it being an essential tool for well-functioning markets so what is AMA doing then to educate the wider public about the value of short selling well if you, if you look back over time at the um uh, the reams of um uh, of stuff that AMA have written about short selling and that much of which is available uh, on the public um, section of our website, uh, really defending short selling, but trying to defend it in a, in, a, in a practical way to explain what short selling is about, why it is employed, the various different circumstances in which it is used. Uh, and also, as a result of both our own research and indeed the research I alluded to earlier on, done from academics and uh, and, and, and various other specialists, proving that there is no positive effect um, from short-selling bans, and indeed also proving that short sales don't um, expedite the demise of very healthy companies. Uh, so I think it's very important to show that evidence, um, to make that available. Uh, I think we've been successful um, uh, with policymakers and regulators in helping them understand uh, what is going on here. And I think the results, as they've already described, uh, are, are plain to see in terms of no knee-jerk reactions or very few knee-jerk reactions uh, to market instability by just putting blanket bans on short selling. Uh, when it comes to the, br the, 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 the broader public, uh, you know, how important is it? Yes, we want everyone to, to, to fully understand what is going on, but the way that we choose to do that is... is uh, hopefully through the media. I mean, Dan's been a great um, uh, mouthpiece for that. Um, he has a lot of influence, a lot of followers. Uh, and by him getting his story across, uh, I think is going to be incredibly um, helpful uh, for anyone who reads it. Um, when it comes to the, the, the companies themselves whose shares are listed, um, the corporates, it's going to be more difficult. Nobody wants anybody to take a bet against their share price. If you're a, um, uh, a chief executive, a chief financial officer uh, of a listed company, you want your share price always to be rising. You always want to have good news that is going to make it rise further. 
So, um, you know, we hope they will understand and whether the way that we want to get to them is that to try and point out that if somebody takes a short position on their, on their stock, that may not be, and more often than not, is not for nefarious reasons. Uh, it can purely be a hedging strategy or indeed if it's convertible arbitrage, they may be long one uh, asset class of that company's shares uh, and, uh, and shorting to protect themselves uh, on the other side by selling the actual uh, listed equity itself. So uh, a lot more work to be done, but I think we've made a lot of progress uh, and Dan's book is certainly going to help that further. And actually in the spirit of being uh, ho- hopefully useful and providing educational resources, uh, any listeners that could do with brushing up on just the essentials of short selling and, and maybe where we are in the current regulatory landscape, because there is a fair amount going on there, especially in the EU and the US. Episode 10 of The Long Short with Adam Jacobs-Dean does cover some of those highlights for anybody who's looking for, for somewhere to go after this episode. But Jack, th- thank you so much for taking the time. It's always pleasure to talk to you and get your insight and i know this was a a topic close to your heart and that you followed uh very intimately at the time so we we just couldn't help but get you on to to hear about it now we're at this next chapter good stuff thank you very much guys the long short was brought to you by amet the alternative investment management association the global representative for the alternative investment industry as always you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to the long short on spotify apple podcasts and google podcasts or by streaming episodes directly from our website, aimer.org. Thanks for listening.